Thank you once again. Good morning to students and teachers of the Word of God. This is the regular theological seminar of the air, and our broadcast today we're uh, continually uh, or continuing with our studies on the second coming of Christ, and dealing in this broadcast in particular with the results of His return. Now we've talked on the previous broadcast about the sign, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've talked about the difference between the advent and the rapture. Now in today's broadcast, we deal with the results of his return. The second coming of Christ is mentioned 318 times in 260 chapters of the New Testament. It occupies one in every 25 verses of the New Testament, and is mentioned more than 500 times in the Old Testament. This means the second coming of Christ is mentioned, mentioned 800 times in the Bible, directly, not counting indirect references, which means the second coming of Christ is mentioned more times than water baptism or church membership combined. Therefore, a man who spends the most of his time talking about baptism in Acts 2.38 is a man who has a perverted view of the Word of God and is unbalanced in his presentation. Any man who wastes a lot of time talking about church membership and water baptism from the Word of God has an unbalanced or non-biblical point of view. Although church membership is certainly uh, something that a Christian should participate in, and said no Christian should be out uh, without a uniform to identify himself. He ought to be identified as the Lord's servant in the Lord's army and enlisted. Although this is true, and although this is certainly a New Testament doctrine, and although certainly believe a believer should follow the Lord in believer's baptism after he's saved, when we approach the matter of balance, we must realize the second coming of Christ is much more important than either of these doctrines or any other two doctrines in the New Testament. We often hear people argue about which is the church that Christ founded and uh, what is the correct mode of baptism and talking about talking in tongues and all this business. And this is the work of somebody who has an improper view of Scripture and is unbalanced mentally, at least in the scriptural sense. The second coming of Christ is mentioned more than five times as many times as any other single subject by itself, and more than 50 times as many times as water baptism. It occupies one in every 25 verses in the New Testament, and we must always be careful to remember that water baptism is never connected with the word eternal life. It is never connected with the word regeneration. It is never connected with the word uh, salvation. It is connect never connected with the word justification. It is never connected with the word uh, redemption, nor it is ever connected with the word everlasting life. Sometimes water baptism may be connected directly and indirectly with contexts that talk about being saved, but of course these contexts will bear close watching. As an immediate context, you will learn that sometimes salvation refers to something beside eternal salvation, and many times the baptism referred to in the past is not water baptism at all. From 1 Thessalonians 4.18, we learn that we are to comfort one another with the fact of the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The hope of the world for four millenniums was the coming of the promised Messiah, and the hope of the New Testament for the next two millenniums is the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The last prayer of the Bible is not a prayer for world peace. The last prayer of the Bible is not for a charismatic renewal. The last prayer of the Bible is certainly not for the pouring out of the latter rain and all that nonsense, as the Pentecostals try to make Joel chapter 2 refer to a spiritual blessing, when in the context it is literal rain on a literal land. The last prayer in the Bible is not for the gifts of the Spirit. The last prayer in the Bible is not for anybody to get saved. And so the last prayer in the Bible is not for wars to end. That's all uh, socialistic nonsense. The last prayer in the Bible is, Even so, come Lord Jesus. 
Now, this doctrine draws the wrath of Satan, for he hates this final glorious event, and the doctrine of the second coming and the constant emphasis upon it will draw fire from religious socialists, because these people who are trying to en uh, engage themselves in making this world a better place to live in are nothing but cheap politicians, regardless of their profession of faith. The Bible never attempts to make the world a better place for anything. The way to make the world a better place is make people better. The way to make people better is by the new birth, and that doesn't solve all the problems. The way to make the world better is get the people saved and get them to love God and obey God and believe God, and that will make the world a better place to live in. This is not the political approach or the approach of the HEW or the CFR or the Illuminati or the international uh, bankers or the Federal Reserve System. Their way to make the world a better place to live in is to put in insane asylums and concentration camps anybody that doesn't go along with the program. So if we're going to talk about Jesus Christ coming back, we're going to upset the devil's people greatly because their hope is not the second coming of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, for them, that is a disaster. More than a misfortune, a disaster. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, the first thing he will do will get rid and destroy and get rid of every single structure that has to do with the United Nations. In 24 hours, the entire machinery will be overthrown. In 24 hours, every House of Representatives, Parliament, and Congress in the face of the earth will go up in a cloud of smoke, and there won't be a dictator left to take a dollar out of your pocket. And that's why the world doesn't want him to come back. They want to work it out their own way. A worldly church and carnal Christians hate the purifying doctrine of the second coming of Jesus Christ because they're in love with the world and have settled down in the world. And like Demas, they have forsaken the Lord, having loved this present world. The fact of the Lord's return leads us to a life of watchfulness, fidelity, wisdom, activity, simplicity, self-restraint, prayer, and abiding in Christ. And all these uh, virtues are found connected with past the view of the second coming of Christ. Watch and pray, for in such an hour as you think not, your Lord cometh. Uh, the Bible says, oh, Rejoice, and again I say rejoice, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Disciples may disagree on doctrine, but all ought to be occupied in watching, and the true child of God is watching and waiting for his returning and longing for his returning. For the more special blessings are promised to those who watch faithfully. In Luke 12:37, Jesus said, Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Paul says, Watch and pray. Paul says, You ought to watch and be sober. And those that are saved are not of the darkness of the night, but are the daytime and light. Now, the first result of the second coming with result or with regard to God is, the glory of the Lord should be revealed, and all flesh shall see it, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. When Christ returns, the glory of the Lord will be revealed, everyone shall see it. The Bible says, All the kindred of earth shall wail because of him, and every eye shall see him. In Isaiah 40, verse 5, this is clearly brought out by the fact that the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Now, years ago, we had an international socialist up north who wrote a song called the Battle Hymn of the Republic, which was borrowed from a southern hymn. This Battle Hymn of the Republic, then with the obscene and vulgar and blasphemous nonsense, quote, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Now, the professional liar who penned these words was taken at face value to be a Christian, and the Battle Hymn of the Republic ever since then has been found strangely enough in Christian hymnals. Exactly why this obscene, vulgar, and blasphemous, non-scriptural travesty of the truth should be sung by Christians is past finding out. The woman who wrote the song did not see the glory of the coming of the Lord, and the Lord has not yet come in glory, 
And when he comes in glory, he'll come in the glory of his Father and the holy angels, and sit upon the throne of his glory, at the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The international socialist who wrote that song to instigate the Civil War had never seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, because the Lord had not yet come, and he hasn't come yet. So it was quite natural, after the Civil War was fought, people who thought the kingdom was coming in were disappointed to see that nothing happened except two more world wars. It was cheek and uh, cliché back in those days, and, you know, in, to go around singing, the master say ha-ha, and the darkie say ho-ho, for it must be that the kingdom am coming in the year of Jubilo. And when the Emancipation of Proclamation was read, there were actually conceited fools in America who were dumb enough to think the kingdom had come. We still have to put up with these international socialists and communists, not only in Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, where he speaks of government of the people, by the people, for the people, not of God, not by God, not for God, and not with God, shall not perish from the earth. The only way to have government of the people, by the people, and for the people is for the people to keep killing the people at a lively pace every 20 years until Jesus comes back. And then government of the people, by the people, for the people, thank God, will be a thing of the past. And the government shall rest upon his shoulders, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you'll have the right form of government. Now, we only bring this to your mind because many blasphemous and obscene tunes have been inserted into a hymnal under the prose or guise of being Christian. The lady who wrote the so-called battle hymn of the Republic had not seen the glory of the Lord. He was not planting out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored, because the grapes of wrath are quoted in Deuteronomy 32, a thousand years before that woman was born, and when Christ tramps them out in Isaiah chapter 63, it is described in Second Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 19 and Revelation 14, and these events have not taken place yet, and will not take place till the end of Daniel's 70th week. Therefore, to put this thing in a Christian hymnal as a hymn is really going too far out in the left field to be imagined. If you had a pipe dream in marijuana, you couldn't be any further from the truth. The Lord has not come. He's tramped out nothing, but he's going to, and he tramps it out. He's going to tramp out the grapes of wrath, and the grapes of wrath will be the kind of people who trust in blasphemous, obscene songs like that one, but have no more connection with objective truth than Disneyland or Mickey Mouse. Jesus Christ comes in his glory at the second advent. And when he comes, he will tramp out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Revelation 14, Revelation 19, Isaiah 63, and Deuteronomy 32. And the grapes of wrath he stomps out will not be white southerners. Contrary to Civil War belief, they will be Christ-rejecting, religious, educated, cultured, international socialists who've been trying to make the world a better place to live in. Now with regard to the church. At the coming of Jesus Christ, the dead in Christ shall rise, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. The dead in Christ shall rise first, verse 16, and then the living shall be changed. At his coming, the living believers and resurrected believers will meet together in the clouds and continue to be with the Lord forever, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.17. At the coming of Jesus Christ, the bodies of believers will be changed to be like his. For Philippians 3.20 says, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Every resurrection body of a born-again believer will be the body of a sinless 33-year-old male without blood or without wings. First Corinthians 15, 51-53 says, We shall be changed, for this corruptible must put in corruption, 
and this mortal must put in mortality. Again, 1 John 3 says, Beloved, now we are the sons of God. It doth not yet approve we shall be, but we know he shall appear, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. If study, you study your Bible at all, you know that in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that the believer is predestinated to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. This is a confirmation to Christ's physical resurrected body, which was a flesh and bones body without blood, for, quote, flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49 to 50. Therefore the resurrection body, contrary to all the theology books and all the doctrine books and all the teachings of all the faculty members of every Christian school in America, the resurrection body of every believer will be the body of a sinless, perfect, 33-year-old male without wings, a body of glorified flesh and bones without blood. Now, this may contradict everything written and taught in the subject. Our uh, position this is very clear. Our job is to tell you what the Bible says, not what it is presumed to teach. Jesus Christ came up from the grave with a 33-year-old male body with no blood and no wings. Every angel in that Bible is a male. There isn't a sexless angel in that Bible from generation to revolution. <laughs> and the fact that scholars and commentators insist on teaching that nonsense is no cause for the Bible believer to do anything but simply go fishing or play around with golf. The resurrection body is a 33-year-old male body without blood. Our predestination after we're saved is to be conformed to his image, and that is why the word predestination never occurs anywhere in the Bible in connection with anybody's salvation. John Calvin made the gross and horrible mistake of thinking that the believer is predestinated to be saved. For the word predestination only occurs two times in the New Testament, one time dealing with a saved man who is predestinated to be adopted, and the other time with a saved man who is predestinated to have a body just like Jesus Christ. The term predestination in the Bible never has any reference to the salvation of the elect or the non-elect. That's just some more nonsense you can pick up, you know, from various writers. Now, that isn't all. With regard to the church, the second coming of Christ will result in the fact that the judgment of believers will take place. The judgment seat of Christ, mentioned in Romans chapter 10, or Romans chapter 12, and 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and 1 Corinthians chapter 5, will take place where the believers will be rewarded for what they have done for the Lord and suffer a loss of reward for what they have failed to do for the Lord. Now, this is the place of reward. The judgment seat of Christ, of course, has nothing to do with salvation. The judgment seat of Christ, the place where the believer who has salvation is tried for his service to the Lord after he is saved. Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone, other Bible-rejecting Christians, never could get this doctrine straight. And as a result, you'll find that the term judgment seat of Christ in Romans 14 has been altered to judgment seat of God in the new Bible perversions. Uh, these are vulgar productions that pervert and twist the Word of God were put out by men who know nothing about the judgment seat of Christ. So they took out the word Christ and made it God. This would confound the judgment seat of Christ with the great white throne judgment. And, of course, the two are not the same, and the serious student of the Word of God should study to show himself approved unto God, a warp and the needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. At the judgment seat of Christ, which will take place at the rapture, only believers are present. At the white throne judgment, unbelievers are present. At the judgment seat of Christ, the test is your motive for service after you were saved. At the white throne judgment, the test is, is your name in the Lamb's book of life. At the judgment seat of Christ, 
Christ has still a thousand years of literal, physical, visible, messianic, Davidic, political reign to accomplish on this earth, while at the white throne judgment the earth has passed away and the elements have melted with a fervent heat. Therefore one should never confound or mistake the white throne judgment of the unsaved dead with the judgment seat of Christ that will take place for the believer at the rapture of the church. And this is very important because there are no Campbellites anywhere in the state of Texas or any other state that can accurately preach on the judgment seat of Christ. They know absolutely nothing about it. Although there is clearly given in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and Romans chapter 14, there are no Campbellite preachers who ever discourse on the subject. It is an enigma and a mystery to them, for the natural man receiveth not the thing of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish unto him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. The judgment seat of Christ tests our works for the Lord after we're saved, and these works bring about an earned reward. Colossians chapter 3. Of course, this has nothing to do with eternal life, which was a free gift of God, which we received when we accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as a personal Savior. And, of course, no man who accepts the uh, uh, twisted delusion that Acts 2.38 of the plan of salvation could ever understand the judgment seat of Christ. Unsaved elders and bishops and preachers who try to get to heaven by Acts 2 and James 2 always fall into the snare of Satan and are taken captive by him at his will and consequently cannot intelligently expound on any major portion of Scripture. If you want to see a Campbellite uh, blow a gasket and burn out the clutch plate and strip the gears, Ask the poor deluded man to give you a message on imputation. That'll be the funniest thing you've seen since a Chinese fire drill or when a bullfrog tried to play Sweet Lay Lonnie on a Chinese banjo. There isn't one unsaved elder in this country who talks about being a Christian who has ever brought a message on imputation. And the reason why they can't is because their sins are still imputed to them. David said, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. There never lived upon the face of this earth the Camelite preacher would understand that verse. And that verse is in Romans, written by the apostle of the Gentiles to the body of Christ. Isn't it rather funny to see a man who lays so much emphasis on Romans 16, 16, and can't expound Romans 4 and 5? Isn't that a flip? Now when Jesus Christ comes back at the Revelation, the church will live and reign with Christ. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 says they lived and reign with Christ a thousand years. So the results of the Lord Jesus Christ's second coming in regard to the church are the dead Christians come up first. They're joined by the living Christians. They go to meet the Lord and are judged at the judgment seat of Christ. Then they're as a body of people. They are married to the Lamb. The wedding of the Lamb takes place. And Christ returns for a 1,000-year honeymoon on this earth with his bride and sets up a millennial reign upon this earth for 1,000 years, a literal, physical, visible, Davidic, messianic reign where education, science, and religion will be annihilated. And instead of those three great clowns, science, education, and religion, we will have the living God, Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh, glorified flesh, reigning at Jerusalem with a rod of iron for 1,000 years under a divine military dictatorship. And that's why some folks prefer religious, religion, education, science. They don't like a holy God interfering with their devilment. All right, now about the second coming of Christ with regards to Israel. First of all, the coming of Christ will be preceded by the regathering of Israel. 
This is the second regathering, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 to 12. And the second regathering, of course, took place between 1918 and 1948. As a wise man so aptly has said, the purpose of World War I was to prepare the land for the Jews, and the purpose of World War II was to prepare the Jew for the land. In 1918, when the Balfour Declaration went into effect under Lord Balfour, and the Grand Mufti of Arabia came to England to the House of Parliament and tried to stop the return of Jews to the land of Palestine, the land was made ready by British mandate for the occupation of Israel. But the Jews did not want to go back. They're making good money and bankrupt Germany. Germany was bankrupt after World War II, one with the inflationary standards you couldn't imagine, and business was good in Germany, so the Jews stayed in the continent and made money. God had one more problem, how to get the Jew ready for the land. The method that he chose was Himmler, Eichmann, and Adolf Hitler. The Jews went back, and of course they go back in unbelief, according to Ezekiel 36, 24, Ezekiel 37, 21, and Isaiah 11. The Lord said about the children of Israel, I'll send many fishers for them and many hunters for them, and they shall hunt for them and fish them. This took place in the First World War and the Second World War, and the Jews are now back in the homeland. The prophecies of Ezekiel 36:24 and Zephaniah 3:19 have largely been fulfilled, and especially since Israel became a state in 1948. The two nations that backed up Israel's political position in 1948 were the United States and Great Britain. Russia and the Pope voted against it. And it would be interesting to note that according to the tablet, the official Roman paper, I have here reprint verbatim word for word, where Pope Pius XII said that, after all, Palestine did belong to the Arabs. And when Lord Balfour and the English Parliament reneged in the Balfour Declaration in 1918, the leader in opposition against Israel was a man who you'd never guess. And if I were to tell you his name, you wouldn't believe me until you got to the judgment seat of Christ. But the man who opposed the resettlement of Palestine by the Jews out of their own state and their own country in 1918 was Sir Winston Churchill. At the coming of Christ, the nation of Israel, all twelve tribes, would be reunited, according to Ezekiel 37, verse 90 to 24. And then Jesus Christ, David's son, will reign as the prophesied king, according to Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6. At that time, Israel will be judged and cleansed at the end of the tribulation, and according to Romans 11:26, all Israel shall be saved. There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. You will find this cleansing of Israel from her sins and God forgiving her in Ezekiel 37:23 and Ezekiel 36, verse 25 to 29. This forgiveness of Israel is the new covenant mentioned in Hebrews chapter 8. And although every Bible college in America teaches the covenant of Hebrews chapter 8 is the New Testament covenant with the Christian, it obviously is not. For if you read Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 to 10, you will find the covenant is not with the body of Christ, the church, but with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And as I've said before in the theological seminar of the air, our duty is to tell you what the Bible says, not what it is presumed to teach. You may presume to think that Hebrews 8 is a reference to the body of Christ, but that isn't what the verses said. They said the house of Israel, the house of Judah, the covenant that Jesus Christ will perform with them after the great tribulation, after those days. This trending or restoration of Israel is also mentioned by Simon Peter in Acts chapter 3. And if you will study the last seven verses in Acts chapter 3, 
you'll find that until the time the Apostle Paul was saved, and the revelation, the gospel, the grace of God was given to him, that all the apostles thought that the sins of Israel would not be blotted out until the second advent. They had a perfect right to believe this, according to Ezekiel 36 and 37, and Jeremiah 30 to 33, and Jeremiah 50 to 51. It was a new revelation that the sins were blotted out at Calvary, and this revelation was given to the apostle Paul. Until then, they thought that the sins were blotted out at the second coming of Christ. And in Acts chapter 8, Simon Peter is very careful to tell the Jews about this, that their sins will be blotted out when the times of restitution come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ. Israel and Palestine shall prosper tremendously at the time of the second coming, according to Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34. Ezekiel 36 says, I will increase them with men like a flock, as the holy flock. Ezekiel 36 says, This land that was desolate is become like the Garden of Eden. And when Jesus Christ returned to sit upon the political, Davidic, visible throne in Palestine to overthrow the United Nations and Communist China and Communist Russia and the Republic of Great Britain and France and the democracy of the United States, Israel will be the leading nation of the world. Zechariah 8.23, Isaiah 49.22. At this time, Israel will take the message of the kingdom to all nations. Isaiah 66.19. And Isaiah says they shall declare God's glory among the Gentiles. At this time, Gentiles, ten will take hold of the skirt of a Jew and say, Take us up to Jerusalem and teach us the law of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 2. And at that time will be fulfilled the blasphemous, obscene title written on the side of the United Nations building, which says there will be no more war, for they shall beat their swords and spears and the plowshares and pruning hook and not study war anymore. This verse, piecemeal lifted and aborted and mutilated from Isaiah 2, stands on the side of the United Nations building in Stink City, commonly called Death City by the police and Stupid City by the National Teachers Association. The resting and perversion of this verse to apply to the United Nations is perhaps the funniest hoax ever perpetrated upon the godless race of depraved mankind. This verse in Isaiah 2 will only be fulfilled at Jerusalem not New York. And if you will check the reference in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, you will find there will be no peace in this earth till the Prince of Peace comes. Nations will continue to study war and war and have rumors of wars until the second advent of Jesus Christ. And the United Nations had 38 wars since 1948. The United Nations, by all odds, is the worst war-troubling, war-mongering, war-promoting, war-stimulating militant organization that has ever been on the face of this earth. There have been 38 wars fought since the peace of 1945 under the auspices of the United Nations, who has on their building a King James Version quotation of Isaiah chapter 11, or rather Isaiah chapter 2. And the quotation of Isaiah chapter 2 will only be fulfilled when Jesus Christ comes back and blows the United Nations into the chaff of the summer threshing floor, and the wind blows it away. Daniel chapter 2. Finally, many of the promises that Israel expected to be fulfilled at the first coming will be actually fulfilled when the Savior returns the second time, and among these promises are 500 prophecies in the Old Testament which await future fulfillment. When Christ comes back, these 500 prophecies will be fulfilled to the letter, literally, as he comes back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
In our next broadcast, we'll take up a continuation of the study on the results of the second coming of Jesus Christ. We've talked in this broadcast about the results of his turn with regards to God, with regards to the church, and with regards to Israel. And our next broadcast, we'll talk about the second coming of Christ, as it will affect the nations, society, the Antichrist, the devil, and its results upon the physical universe. Until then, may the Lord bless you, and good day.